Good morning, Foothill Church. Um, today's scripture is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Please stand for the word of the Lord. Okay, Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to see you all. We are uh, continuing in our kind of summer series, uh, Meals with Jesus, where we uh, look at meals with Jesus. Pretty catchy uh, title. Our marketing uh, department is stellar here. So um, they actually are. Um, this morning we're going to look at a meal who uh, those that were present will never forget in their life. And so I just want to ask you, what's, have you had a meal? What's the most memorable meal you've ever had? Um, what's a meal that you're like, oh, that's the meal I remember. I have a few that I can kind of remember. Uh, one of them was uh, my wife and I got invited to buy a church in, in Sweden. We were still living in Ireland at the time to come. They were working through some stuff, uh, some changes, and they asked us to come and, and to help them think through some of that. But the first night we got there, uh, they picked us up and uh, took us to our hotel. And they're like, hey, we just kind of have like this is business meeting tonight. And rather than bore you with that, we thought we would just send you to dinner. And um, it's on us. And, and you can then just walk back to your hotel. And we're like, oh, great. Um, romantic evening together. And, and so we went. And uh, when we went, it got to the restaurant and it was actually um, started 
by the sous chef who had come across the bridge from Copenhagen from the number one restaurant in the world um, for the last few years. And he had opened this restaurant. And it was a seven course tasting menu uh, with wine pairings. And so the chef would come out and bring the food and explain it to us because it needed explanation. Um, this is stuff I had never eaten. We ate like moose heart, I think. And we had like eel and like all the Scandinavian kind of food with ingredients that I could never buy on my own, which is the kind of way I like to eat out. There's nothing worse than paying for a meal. You're like, I could have made this at home. So th this was, I would never be able to make this meal. And um, then, then the sommelier would come out and he would explain the wine and why it was paired with this. And it took about three hours to, to have dinner together and, and just our conversations and the set. And I'll never forget that meal. It was amazing. Um, it was incredible. And so this morning, we're going to look at this meal and trust me, anyone who was at this meal would remember it for the rest of their life. Um, Brian, uh, if you remember last week, kind of started us off with this uh, idea of a meal as grace. We're going to kind of build on that this week as we see how community is formed out of the grace of, uh, that Jesus offers us. Because meals aren't just symbols of the kingdom. They are, right? Well, we're going to end our service as we do each week, remembering these symbols of the kingdom. But also meals are the means by which the kingdom often extends as well. We get this description of the early church in, in the book of Acts. And um, this is what it says. It says, day by day, attending the temple together. So they were gathering for worship, similar to we are now. They were gathered together uh, in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So day by day, they were worshiping and eating together. And day by day, the Lord added to the number of those who were being saved through those means by which the community was gathering. And so meals aren't just symbols of the kingdom. They're often the means of the kingdom as well. And we know this instinctively, right? Because meals are, are full of significance. Eating together, who we eat with, who we don't eat with, is full of significance. Do you remember, uh, my family moved uh, in between elementary and, and middle school. I was called junior high back then. Um, and uh, I remember like that first day going into like a junior high cafeteria. Is there any more scarier place on the planet than a junior high cafeteria? You're kind of like trembling with your tray. Who do I, who do I get to eat with? Or the, am I going to end up all by myself at some table alone for everybody to be like, oh, that's a guy no one wants to eat with? Like who we eat with says something about us, doesn't it? They communicate something. So much so the, the actual English word that we have for companion comes from the Latin words uh, companus. Come meaning together, panus meaning bread. Companion literally means together bread. Together bread. We eat bread together. That's who my companions are. Because meals are intimate. You think of all the family meals around your dining table, the laughing, the storytelling, the sharing of news, maybe even tears, the welcoming of guests. We have uh, a family staying with us this, uh, this week and uh, all 10 of us are crammed around our dining table, you know, kind of shoulder to shoulder. And it's awesome. It's great. We celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, think of wedding feasts, all these intimate meals that we've had. Maybe you've even reconciled with someone over a meal because it's pretty difficult, isn't it, to eat in silence when you know that something is wrong. And so here, um, before we kind of get into the, 
the proverbial meat and potatoes of the sermon. Uh, we need a little background information because there's some cultural things that are going on that are going to be very different from what we're used to. And so the setting of this is verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked them to eat, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And so um, we see this person is a Pharisee. Luke wants us to know that. He's, he's said it twice already in this verse. He'll say it four times in the first four verses of this passage. Um, and this is important because who Jesus is dining with and who the invitation is given by and accepted um, is important. This was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees above all were obsessed with two things. Purity, that is keeping the law. They wanted to keep themselves pure. And so they had the law that they were to keep, but they were so obsessed with that, they added all these other laws just so that they wouldn't even come close to breaking the laws that they were supposed to, break, uh, to keep. So they had like 640 some laws. Um, and they, they were obsessed with this purity of keeping the law. The other thing they were obsessed with was separation. Keeping away from those they deemed unclean, uh, lawbreakers, that, that for sure included Gentiles, uh, people who weren't of their uh, ethnicity, and it also um, were people that they deemed uh, sinners. And Brian very helpfully walked us through that, that last week, right? There's this other category, sinners, tax collectors. They wouldn't be caught dead eating with those sorts of people. And this is who's invited Jesus to a dinner party. And we see that Jesus comes and he reclines at the table. Now, that isn't uh, Jesus just being super casual. Um, that's how they ate back then. Uh, oftentimes, they would eat around a table reclining. I think we have a picture. Uh, this is called a triclinium. Uh, tri meaning three sides, clinate uh, to recline. And so you would come and you would kind of recline. You'd, you'd you know, lay up on, on one elbow, you could eat and talk to the people next to you. The servants could come in the middle and serve uh, or come around, um, you know, behind you. And so Jesus is at this table and his feet are kind of out, out behind him. That's kind of important uh, to the story, right? So Jesus has come and he's, he's accepted this invitation. Um, last week we saw that the term that Jesus uses for himself a lot is the son of man. And we see the son of man comes what? It's just, Jesus will describe the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Pretty uh, famous, popular one. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to, to not to be served, but to serve. And like, oh, those are good. Those are lofty. That's nice. And then last one, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. You're like, that seems a little more mundane than the other two. It's not, he's come to serve and he's come to save and he came to eat and drink with us. And yet, meals are often facilitating matters of the heart. It's often the setting by which the kingdom moves forward because these are settings, intimate settings in which we can get to the heart of the matter in our conversations. And this is what's gonna happen with the host and we see this uninvited guest turn up. The other thing that we need to kind of understand is how houses worked in this culture. Um, in America, we like our space and we like our privacy. So you have the road, you might have a sidewalk, you have a fence maybe, you've got some lawn, and then maybe a porch, and then finally your door. And you're like, you stay out there and I'll stay way back here, right? We like our space, we like our privacy, 
but that's not really how houses work in most of the rest of the world, and certainly not in the ancient world. Uh, so even if you travel to Europe, you'll see uh, European streets like this, where you have the street and the door, and it's all right there. Um, there isn't all this other kind of space. They didn't have cars when a lot of these cities were built, so that kind of makes a little more sense uh, in that way. But often, um, these, these doors, um, if you've been to Paris, I'm not trying to just name drop like fancy European cities I've been to, by the way, this morning. But if you have been to Paris, you'll, you'll notice there are no houses. It's, it's a city entirely made up of, of apartments. And you'll have doors like this. And when you go in those doors, it's usually not into someone's living room. It's into a common space, a courtyard. And from there, other houses are kind of uh, off of that space. And in many ways, that's similar to first century houses like this one where uh, Jesus was invited to. More than likely, this Pharisee would have had a house that looked uh, more like this. So you have a door, you see in the bottom there, um, and that opens into a common area, a common space. So this is where the pizza guy would come welcome in. Your Amazon guy would just walk in here. Um, you don't have to knock. Those doors are open during the day. Neighborhood kids are probably running in and out of there. Um, it's a common kind of area. And then you've got uh, living spaces and you'll see like a dining area with a triclinium set up there in the back. And what would happen is, um, when people would hear an important uh, guest or celebrity or an important teacher was in town, um, oftentimes they would kind of wander into the common area. They weren't invited to the meal. They're not there to eat, but they were there to observe and listen and, and see uh, what was happening and, and listen in on what was going on. And so this is kind of the setup of, of where Jesus is at. He's gone to this Pharisee's house. Um, and what I want us to do today um, is to actually look at this text, look at the story, and kind of see this progression, right? Because we're going to see Jesus welcoming sinners. We're going to see their uh, response, a couple different responses to that invitation um, uh, uh, within that. And then the outflowing of that. So Jesus welcomes sinners. Sinners welcome Jesus into their life. And then the outflow of that is community being built as sinners welcome sinners, sinners welcoming each other. So those are kind of the three categories that I want us to look at and we'll move through. So let's do that. So we see verse 37. They're at the table, they're dining, and all of a sudden this uninvited guest, and behold, that's a, oh, hey, out of nowhere, a woman of the city who was a sinner, literally this is a known in the city as a sinner. When she learned that uh, Jesus is reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, uh, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So we get here and we're like, okay, what's going on? This uh, woman shows up and she's crying all over Jesus and this other things are happening. And you're like, well, maybe that's a cultural thing. No, that was weird then too. So this isn't a cultural thing. This is straight up kind of weird um, for, for anybody. But what I want us to see here, this is what's implied here is this isn't the first time that the woman has heard or, or seen Jesus. She learns that Jesus is gonna be there and then prepares a gift, uh, an alabaster jar of expensive perfume, this ointment, and brings it to uh, this dinner party. She crashes the party essentially. This is her opportunity to give this gift to Jesus. I wonder, as we've seen in Luke 5, that Jesus ate 
with sinners and tax collectors. Has she heard that? She knew Jesus' reputation of welcome. Maybe she had heard him teach on the prodigal son. That God's welcome is always there for the runaway. (laughs) Those who have seemed to run away um, from the Father and are welcomed back. That you're never too far from God's grace. And it seems like she's experienced this. Jesus has changed her life. Maybe this is the first time she's actually felt clean. And she comes. I think she was determined. If she ever got a chance, she ever got a chance to thank Jesus. If I ever get a chance to meet him. And this is her golden opportunity. She learns that Jesus is going to be here. And so she comes. And I think she comes and it seems like she's, she's uh, plans to give Jesus this gift or anoint him with this expensive perfume and she becomes overcome, overwhelmed with emotion and she begins to weep. And not just a little bit, but enough to start to wet his feet with her tears. You can imagine her tears mingling with the, the dust and the dirt of Jesus's feet. And she lets down her hair and begins to wash and wipe his feet. So here you have this dinner. Uh, this woman has made her way into this courtyard, this semi kind of public area. And she somehow from the shadows emerged in and got into the invitation only area behind Jesus. And she's crying all over his feet. And if that's not awkward enough, she then lets down her hair um, to begin to wash and wipe his feet. Now we know like in the Middle East now, even today, it's a covered culture, right? Right? Um, We even have cultures in America that are like this Amish um, women wear their hair up with a bonnet or some kind of head covering over it. It's a a cultural um, way of modesty. A lot of men in that culture would, the first time they've seen their wives' hair was their wedding night. And so to let down your hair um, in public is this intimate, intimate act. It's not sexual in this kind, but it, it certainly is intimate and culturally inappropriate. Imagine this is how this woman knows how to show affection. But notice Jesus' reaction. He doesn't recoil. He doesn't reject her. He receives her affection. He receives her hospitality. He's not concerned in this moment with her reputation or her past. He's not concerned with his reputation of being associated. This is a scandalous kind of grace that Jesus offers this woman. And notice the reply of, of the Pharisee who's just thinking to himself, if, if Jesus really were a prophet, he would know who this woman is and what kind of woman this is because she is a sinner. And it's interesting that Jesus turns to him and answers his thoughts. I don't know that I would want to have been like, one of Jesus' disciples in person. I know Jesus knows our thoughts now, but I don't have to like see him giving me side eye, like, oh, hey. I think I'd be paranoid, don't think it, don't think it, don't think it, all the time. Because this is what happens. This, this Pharisee's just thinking to himself and Jesus answers his thoughts. And he tells him this, this uh, parable, this story, right? There are these two people who owe a money lender money, uh, 150 denarius, uh, 1,500. A denarius in that time would have been about a day's wage for a day laborer. So one person owns about, owes about two months worth of, of labor uh, and the other one owes about two years worth of, of wages. 
but neither of them can repay. And the moneylender basically excuses their debt. He forgives their debt. Maybe, have you ever been in that situation? Stressed out about owing money? Maybe you're behind on a mortgage. Maybe you're just graduating college and you're like, my kids are gonna be paying off these loans, uh, college loans. Maybe you've borrowed money from a, a friend or a family and then, and then got into a place where you couldn't pay them back when you were supposed to. It's stressful. But then imagine that person being like, hey, just forget it. Imagine you just get a letter from the bank saying, hey, don't worry about any more mortgage payments. It's yours. Your debt's forgiven. Those college loans you're worried about, forgiven. And this is what happens in this story. The money lender absorbs the loss. And notice the question that Jesus then asks, who will love him more? Not who's more grateful, who's more appreciative, but who will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee, you know, is like, well, I suppose. It's like your kid's answer when they know that like there's only one right answer. Like, well, I suppose it's this. I suppose the one who had forgiven the larger debt. Now, what's interesting about this story is right before this passage, in verse 34, it says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So right before this story, Jesus is being accused of being a friend of sinners. And instead of defending Jesus against the accusation, he goes straight into this story to show that it's actually true. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He links his identity to ours to reveal himself as a gracious sinner. He comes eating and drinking to show that sinners can be a part of the kingdom of God. You are welcome to the table of Christ. Knowing that we're sinners, it's who's the one that's excluded? It's the one who's self-righteous. Like Simon. And quite often the grace of God turns out to be uncomfortable. It turns out to be embarrassing at times. It's certainly this situation. There's a lot of secondhand cringing going on at this table right now. But that's what the radical grace of Jesus does. It disrupts social situations at times. We have to admit we don't like that, do we? We don't like it in our houses. We don't like it in our churches. But the son of God ate with sinners. He's not embarrassed by them. He lets them kiss his feet. He's a friend of the riffraff, the traitor, the prostitutes, the mentally ill, the unrespectable, the marginalized people whose lives are a mess. And ultimately, this is who Jesus comes. He gives his life for them, for us. And so calling Jesus a drunkard and a glutton in verse 34 is this allusion to an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21. The Pharisees knew, they kept the law. And in Deuteronomy 21, it, 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 it describes how a stubborn, rebellious son that won't obey the voice of a father, that son is described as a glutton and a drunkard, which is what they're calling Jesus. So it's this allusion back to Jesus being this rebellious son of Israel. <coughs> the response in verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all of our children. In other words, Jesus is saying, you accuse me of this, but we'll see who proves to be the rebellious child and the faithful son. And as we know, it's Jesus who proves to be the faithful son, the faithful son, 
of Israel. It's Israel itself epitomized by these Pharisees that is actually the rebellious child. But here's the irony. Even though Jesus is faithful, he still dies the death of the rebellious son. That passage um, says that, that that rebellious son should be stoned. And later on in that same passage in Deuteronomy, it says anybody who's, who's hung on a tree um, is cursed. And so Jesus, though he's faithful, pays the penalty of the rebellious cursed one. That's you and I. And because of that then, because our debt has been paid, Jesus has the money lender in this parable forgives our debt. He absorbs the debt. You and I get to be forgiven of our debt. And this is what the woman is realizing. Her debt, her sins, and notice that Jesus doesn't write off her sins as if they're nothing. He says her sins, they are many, are forgiven. The implication is, Simon, your sins, which are also many though you won't recognize them, because of your self-righteousness, are going to be unforgiven. You and I are that rebellious son. But Jesus dies the death for us. He dies the death of that rebellious, drunkard, glutton on our behalf. Jesus welcomes sinners. And that's incredible good news for us this morning. The second thing I want us to see is that in response to that, the right response is that sinners welcome Jesus. Sinners welcome Jesus. Those who recognize their sin welcome Jesus is probably the better way to say that. Notice what he says um, after this story. He says, then turning uh, towards the woman, he said to Simon. So he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon the Pharisee. Do you see this woman? Now that's a silly question. Everybody saw the woman. Like the whole, the whole dinner party is stopped. All, all, all the focus is on what is going on right now. Of course they saw the woman. But Simon didn't see the woman. He didn't actually see who she was. He didn't see what Jesus saw. He saw a sinner. He saw someone unclean. Someone to look down on. An outcast. Someone to be dismissed. But here the uninvited sinner is the one who's acting like the host. The one who looks most inappropriate is the one who's acting the most appropriate. Why is that? And Jesus tells us why um, in verse uh, 46. He says, you did, uh, oh, sorry, in verse 45. He says to Simon, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Much forgiveness equals much love. She knew she had been forgiven much. She knew her debt was, was high and that Jesus forgave them. Her, her life had been changed. And the response of that was this love toward Christ, this, this overwhelming response. 
Simon the Pharisee, little forgiveness. And the response is little love, little, well, no welcome, no hospitality at all. She's covering for him. She is covering as the host. You see Simon going, well, yeah, I'm a sinner. Technically, we know that. I'm just not as good at it as she is. She's a way better sinner than I am. My sins are small and few, or I perceive my sins to be small and few. And so I see my forgiveness as small and few. And my response then is little and minuscule. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, when he's uh, teaching us how to pray, part of this is around forgiveness of our sin. And he refers to it in the same way as our debts, things that we have owed and are unable to pay. So he says, and as we pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I just have to admit, if I'm being really honest this morning, on this spectrum of where this woman was, realizing her, her great debt that had been forgiven her and the response of that out of love and Simon on the other end, who didn't see himself as in, as in need of God's grace, who didn't see his sins to be uh, on the same scale as the other woman, who was depending on his own law keeping and righteousness to save himself, to be in right standing with God, that I am, I am usually much closer to this end of the spectrum. My sins are respectable sins, Jesus. I want us just to, as we think about this, maybe do an exercise together, a liturgy, if you will. Liturgy just means the, the work of the people, right? And so we're gonna do a time of corporate confession this morning. Uh, I'll lead us through it so you don't have to actually, like, don't worry, it's all good. But I'm gonna put some of, I think, our, our corporate common sins, if you will, uh, on the screen. And as I, as I read those off, I want us to respond the way that Jesus has asked us in, in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our debts, okay? So corporately out loud, we'll respond together, forgive us our debts. Got it? Ready? Good? Excellent. Here we go. Let's, I want us just to think, put us in the mindset of maybe uh, a Simon-like person this morning, the ways that we might not see it, the way that we might miss it. So here we go. For living in one of the wealthiest countries in the history of the world and always wanting more, forgive us our debts. For valuing my stuff more than people, forgive us our debts. For being capable and intelligent and treating as inferior those I deem less intelligent and capable, forgive us our debts. For being uh, for, for sexual sins of the body and mind, forgive us our debts. For being self-absorbed, forgive us our debts. For failing to encourage those in desperate need of encouragement, forgive us our debts. For minimizing my faults while maximizing the faults of others, forgive us our debts. For getting laughs at the expense of others, Forgive us our debts. 
for repeating and sharing things that simply need not be shared or repeated. Forgive us our debts. For assuming a pure motivation on my part while judging or assigning wrong motives to others. Forgive us our debts. These are the respectable kind of sins, aren't they? Not getting caught in the act of adultery. I'm not holding up a 7-Eleven. The police aren't coming for any of these things. And so we minimize them. This is just an example of our, our mindset can be so much like Simon, isn't it? But Jesus comes and he saves us from these sins, not only the ones that we commit, but also the sins that we would have committed had it not been for his grace and mercy. Only by the grace and mercy of God. Much forgiveness, much love. Little forgiveness, little love. So then as we draw to a close here, how, how does this work itself out then? When we see that we are like the woman, that we are those sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness in our life, as we receive that and ask for that, as she did and as Simon doesn't, as he rejects that, what is the outworking of that then? How does our, uh, our, our vertical relationship with God work its way out in the horizontal? Because this is a, a meal of community. It's a, it's, we're starting to see how community is actually built and flipped upside down of how our culture normally sees and, and views it, right? Verse 50, he says, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So this is, this is the community that we are. We are a community of faith, right? We're a community of faith. It's faith in Jesus that has saved us. That is the common ground on which you and I as, as brothers and sisters in Christ live. We talk about uh, our mission statement here every week, and it's that we are growing in our relationship with Jesus as we are rooted in the gospel. We're rooted in the gospel. It's the good news of, of Jesus's life and death on our behalf. Simon had a small gospel, and so he had very little welcome for outsiders and sinners, people who weren't like him, the other. He looked down on the woman, not as an equal receiving God's grace, but the woman has a big gospel. She understands what Jesus has done for us, and the outworking of that then is this outlandish hospitality. An embarrassing amount of, of response. And so we're called to practice the way of Jesus and his welcoming hospitality. Not just because that's the way Jesus was, but that's also where the kingdom of God is moving to. It's what it's moving toward. We uh, read from Revelation, right? You keep reading in that and there's this description of the, uh, a fulfillment of prophecy that happens from Isaiah 25. And this is this description of, of when Christ returns again, gathers his people, what that actually looks like. It says, Isaiah 25, 6 and 8, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, that's peoples from all makeup, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And we all said, Amen. This is where the kingdom of God is moving to. This banquet, this feast that the Lord will host himself. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. 
The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. Notice it was all people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every socioeconomic group. It's not just for these people who can keep the law all by themselves and keep themselves pure and separated. It's for those who know they need the grace of God. This is what our eternity looks like. Us together at a meal. Uh, Wynn Butler, who's the lead singer of Arcade Fire, great band, check him out. Um, he, used to, he grew up in church and then fell away at some point. And he was, he was lamenting uh, what he missed about uh, church. And he says this, he says, what I got from it was a sense of belonging to something bigger. What I really miss is being forced to be in community with people who aren't the same as you. Then you have to work out the ways that you're different. See, meals indicate social status, don't they? But they also allow us as followers of Jesus to transform social status. We come together in fellowship because we are one in Christ. We're not one in political party. We're one in Christ. We're not one in ethnicity. We're one in Christ. We're not one in socioeconomic status. We're one in Christ. We're not one in agreement on every single issue that our culture presents us. We're one in Christ. This is what Jesus is doing in eating with the marginalized. At the table of Christ, they cease to be marginalized. The lonely find companions, strangers become friends. And so as we end, I wanna ask, ask you, ask me, who do we marginalize? Who is it that you wouldn't wanna sit across the table from and share a meal with? What kind of person is that? The church is often described in the New Testament as a family. We tend to think of it as a corporate kind of institution, but often it talks about it being a family. God, our father, Jesus, the older brother, you and I united in Christ as brothers and sisters to each other. Church leaders are family leaders, right? It's why church leaders have to be able to manage their own households before they manage the household of God. It's interesting that elders, one of the requirements of being an elder is to be hospitable. How could you lead a, a meal and a meeting if, if you weren't? Church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 is described as withdrawing kind of table fellowship in that sense so that they understand there's something missing that they might turn in repentance and be able to be welcomed back to the table again. In Galatians 2, Paul, the apostle comes and he opposes Peter publicly. And his sin, he says, the sin that he was committing wasn't in line with the gospel. Do you know what that sin was? Not eating with people. That was his sin. Imagine the apostle Paul having to show up and call you out in front of everybody. And your great sin was you've stopped eating with these people because these other people showed up. And he says, that's not a picture of the gospel. It's not in line with the gospel. Jesus welcomes us as sinners. We respond in welcoming Jesus. We practice the way of Jesus. We follow him. And we welcome each other as Jesus welcomes us in the gospel. That's my prayer for us as a church. As we live in a time of deep polarization in our society, 
where culture around us is forming tribes, politically, socioeconomically, ethnically, whatever it is. We find ways to bifurcate each other uh, off from each other all the time. I've lived in Belfast, Northern Ireland. We literally have built walls to separate communities from each other, like literal walls to keep us and them, the other, away from each other. Too often the church can begin to take on these same patterns of the world. We can also exclude people in worldly ways rather than following the way of Jesus who welcomes people of every kind to turn from their sin and become a community of grace. Recognizing we have been forgiven much leads us to offer welcome and hospitality to, fel to, to fellow sinners to receive the forgiveness, the hospitality, the welcome of Jesus, forming a countercultural community in the kingdom of God. What an opportunity we have as a witness to our community. How come you and that person are in the same like friendship group? That doesn't make any sense. You guys gather together for meals every week together? But you're like 20 years apart in age. You're from different ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. Like, what's the deal there? Jesus has changed our lives together. He's united us together as a family. This is an opportunity that we have. Um, I'm going to step on my own toes too much if I keep talking from the next uh, series, which is Meals as Mission. We'll talk more about that. But may we form this countercultural community that God has made up of all kinds of people because we're rooted in the gospel. We're not relying on ourselves, self-reliance, any kind of exceptionalism of our own individual self, but solely in what Jesus has done as he creates a community and welcomes us to the table together. It's interesting, isn't it, as Jesus institutes uh, the ways that we remember these things, the way that we remember the gospel and what he has done for us. He could have done that in many ways, but he did it with a meal, with us eating together. So take your communal uh, elements, if you will. Um, Jesus says, hey, one of the ways that I want you to remember uh, my death, that I am uniting the people together, is when you eat together, as you break bread, I want you to remember this symbol that this is uh, my body, broken for you. This is why the Christians continue to eat together over and over again. Let's celebrate what the Lord has done for us.